0: What's up, everybody? This is episode 580 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio, and I am your writer-host producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. Sorry this is a little late. Sorry if I sound a little uh, lower uh, on the enthusiasm scale. I'm not feeling too well today. I'm not sure what's going on. But I didn't want to let a week go without a show of Monster Kid Radio. So here we go. Oh, no. Okay, anyway. (laughs) First of all, huge shout out to the band that we're playing this week. It is Satan's Pilgrims. And the reason we're playing Satan's Pilgrims this week is, first of all, I'm a fan. I've been a fan of this band even from before I started Monster Kid Radio. I was a fan of what they do. uh, And uh, just real happy that they've given us permission to play their music here on the show in the past. Well, check this out. This year, they are being inducted into the Oregon Music Hall of Fame. Yes, they are based out of Oregon. So congratulations to the band, the Satan's Pilgrims. Go check them out. A couple of different places you can find them online. satanspilgrims.bandcamp.com is where I'm going to send you to, especially since this is where I first discovered them, is through this website. So go check out their music. This song in particular is called The Dredger. It was released last year in 2021 as a single all over the place, including that band campaign that I just mentioned. So what's coming up this week here on the show? Well, you know, like I said, I'm not feeling so great. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to come up with a way to produce the show and release some content that doesn't take a huge toll on me personally while I get the show out there. So here's what's coming up. Here's what we got. We've got Mark Matthews Beta Capsule Review. Love it. And it turns out that Kenny... Did a famous monster's a filmland segment for last week that I just failed to include in the show. So we're gonna run that this week as well. Now this was intended for last week's episode in which we featured the Q and A with Caroline Monroe from Monster Bash, which means that Kenny refers to the Caroline Monroe Q and A. And yeah, I just I'm really sorry about that. That's entirely on me. Sorry about that, Kenny and gang. I hope uh, you enjoy the Caroline Monroe centric. Famous Monsters of Filmland segment. Now, what is coming up this week on the show? I am going to run the Q&A with Beverly Washburn. Now, I hope people understand that when these recordings are done, they are done in a huge ballroom or conference room at these hotels where the conventions are taking place. And, you know, these rooms are not necessarily designed for acoustics for somebody to come in and record them on an external device the way Mike R. did this week or the way some of the other recordings that I've played over the years have been captured. And I do what I can here on my side, but really it's the content. Content is king. And if it wasn't for people like Mike R. who did this, we wouldn't even have this. So I want to give a huge shout out to Mike for capturing this Q&A for us here on Monster Kid Radio. I did a little bit of fiddling with it on my end, but like I said, I'm just not feeling great this week. So I hope you enjoy what we have here. If it's awesome, it's all because of Mike. If it's not so awesome. It's because of me. Just saying, Now I've got a little bit of feedback and everything, but I think I'm going to sit on that until next week. I just want to get onto the show. I want to get this content out to you guys and gals and everybody else. So here we go.
1: I'm Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome
2: to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game.
1: This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, Mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills.
2: Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I
1: do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at famous monsters of Filmland. Today we are going to hear Caroline Monroe's Monster Bash panel. In FM 182 from April of 1982, I found a six page article on Caroline, which included 13 lovely photos. Let's hear what it had to say.
3: A few years ago, a shaving cream commercial was pulled from distribution because it was deemed to be too sexy, although it mainly featured the eyes of the model. The model was Caroline Monroe, and television viewers were discovering what fans of science fiction and horror had known for a long time. With her dark, flashing eyes, unearthly figure, and defiant pout, Caroline Monroe has enlivened many a film of fantasy and horror, earning her the unofficial, and perhaps unwanted, title of first lady of fantasy films. Caroline has always had an interest in fantasy, but it is not through any conscious design on her part that she has become the field's reigning starlet.
4: I had no plans. When I was younger I had no ambition really. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. It wasn't my burning ambition to be an actress. I was thinking of art school, designing clothes, fabrics.
3: Caroline was born in Roddingdean, a wee little town by the sea in Brighton. Rudyard Kipling had once lived in Roddingdean, and near his cottage was a fabled magic stone. Caroline and her friends were fond of rubbing the stone and dancing around it three times for luck. England being a land rich with myth and magic, young Caroline grew up enthralled. Though she denies having any ambition to act when she was young, she did land her first acting job at this time.
4: I played Jesus in a school play, they only chose me because I was the tallest and rather darkish. I had to look very mournful. One of the other girls had to wash my feet because she had long hair. She didn't fancy that too much."
3: While Caroline was tinkering with the idea of studying art. Her mother entered her in a Face of the Year photo contest, which she won. She then enrolled in a modeling school, and by the time she was 17 she was being featured prominently and frequently in print ads and television commercials
4: my mother encouraged me a great deal there was no resistance to my acting and modeling
3: as caroline's career began to bloom the entire family moved to london the 1967 james bond extravaganza casino royale provided caroline with her first film assignment though she was only one of a dazzling array of beautiful women two years later she was cast as tommy steele's mistress in the comedy where's jack she had her first major part in her third film an obscure little comedy called a talent for loving which starred Richard Widmark. Caroline glided horizontally into the field of horror in 1971, when she appeared as Vincent Price's dead wife in the abominable Dr. Fives and Dr. Fives Rises Again. She spent the entire time in both films laid out in a coffin. In 1971, the head of Hammer Films, Sir James Carreras, spotted Caroline on a billboard and immediately signed her to an acting contract, the only such agreement the economy-minded company has ever made. Her first assignment for Hammer was Dracula A.D. 1972, in which she fell victim to Christopher Lee's Count Dracula. The film also served to introduce Caroline to the peculiar rigors of making fantasy films. The scene in which she is buried after Dracula's fatal bite was filmed out of doors, and much care and time was taken to cover her in rubble.
4: It started to rain. The crew all went off on a tea break, but since they'd spent so much effort on my makeup for the scene, and the setup and so forth they just stuck a paper bag over my head, left me in the rubble, and said ta-ta.
3: Caroline played the female lead in her next film for Hammer, Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. Her part as the gypsy girl is still her favorite of all the characters she has played. Why?
4: Because the girl I played was the most like myself of all my roles. She was a gypsy, she lived with nature. She was uncomplicated in the sense that she knew exactly who she was.
3: This 1974 film was a financial failure, but an artistic success in the opinion of many. The film has developed a cult following over the years.
4: I thought it was quite good, it did not dwell on the horror, and that may have been its downfall.
3: Hammer's financial difficulties forced them to drop the option on Caroline's contract. But what first appeared to be a serious career setback turned out for the best when she was signed to star in what is arguably her finest fantasy film, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Columbia's Golden Voyage of Sinbad gave both Caroline Monroe and special effects maestro Ray Harryhausen a golden opportunity to show off their talents, and both parties succeeded admirably. Harryhausen brought to life some of his finest creations, as Mariana, the slave girl with the talismanic tattoo on her palm. Caroline Monroe turned in a fine performance, skillfully bringing her scenes to life. Caroline found it a fascinating experience working with Harryhausen.
4: Ray did everything himself then. He may have assistants now, but he didn't then. He would fly to all different parts of the world to collect bits of fur for his models. He would take great pains to be sure everything was perfect so that his creatures would actually breathe and live. He would literally lock himself in his rooms in London.
3: It is certainly no secret that the actors film the creature sequences on nearly empty sets, and that Harryhausen animates the scenes later on, matching miniatures.
4: Ray draws a beautiful picture of the beast you'll be confronting, to give you an idea of its appearance and height. He then directs a technician to wave a stick to simulate the beast's motion. He directs all the special effects sequences himself.
3: To get in the mood of these scenes, Caroline did not imagine horrible beasts.
4: You imagine what frightens you.
3: And what frightens the queen of fantasy films?
4: Spiders. Silly things, really. I'm not too keen on heights either. Being a Capricorn, I am drawn to the Earth.
3: Caroline was drawn deep into the Earth for her next fantasy film, the adaptation of Edgar Rice Burroughs at the Earth's core, which she made after a supporting role in a film called The Devil Within Her. Though the technical level of the Burroughs films is not nearly on a par with the Harryhausen projects, Caroline detected no lack of professionalism in the cast and crew. As Dia, another slave girl part, Caroline had little in the way of an acting challenge, but there was plenty to cope with in the special effects sequences.
4: One of the beasties, a flying Maha, I believe it was called, clonked me on the head. They flew it in on a wire, a Maha suit with a very hot man inside it.
3: Caroline's career took one giant step forward when she was cast as Naomi in the James Bond spectacular The Spy Who Loved Me. There is a high attrition rate for people who try to kill Bond, and Caroline as Naomi was no exception. When villain Kurt Jurgens ordered helicopter pilot Naomi to kill Roger Moore as Bond, a thrilling aerial battle ensued which culminated in Naomi's fiery death. Caroline enjoyed working for producer Cubby Broccoli on location in Sardinia.
4: First class all the way.
3: But in rewrites of the script, one of her best scenes was deleted, one in which she was supposed to perform a seductive swim dance with a dolphin. Caroline followed the attention-getting Bond film with Starcrash, an easy favorite among many of her fans. In Starcrash, Caroline played the lead, the swashbuckling but determined star Voyager Stella Star. Though the film is flawed in many respects, humor and continuous action made for a stirring adventure. Caroline is disappointed that Starcrash was not the film it could have been. Due to budget difficulties, some of the special effects were rushed or eliminated. Daily script rewrites damaged the story. Delays and confusion prolonged the shoot to a full three months. Her own voice was not heard on the soundtrack, she was never asked to dub it. Caroline had many fight sequences in the film, and in the course of the shoot struck terror in the hearts of the stunt persons.
4: One or two persons did get bashed about, I'm sorry to say. I bloodied somebody's nose and set his teeth wobbling a bit. He looked so surprised when it happened. I burst into tears.
3: After Star Crash, Caroline did not work in films for a time. She turned down several parts that called for nudity or excessive violence. She did make a brief appearance on the new Avengers TV show. But it was not until she got a late night phone call while staying in new york that she felt the urge to return to feature films she accepted the midnight offer and the very next morning reported on the set of the film that would ultimately be titled maniac maniac a brutal film about a man who is compelled to mutilate young women was a hit in new york paris germany and elsewhere but is yet to be seen in many areas because of its extreme violence the film was banned in caroline's native england a toned-down R-rated version is making its way across the United States. Maniac is the first ultra-violent film Caroline has been in or seen, and, like many people, is not sure what the relationship is between screen violence and street violence.
4: I can't defend it, I don't condone it. I think it does exercise the violence in some people. When you talk to young people about it, it's interesting. A lot of them have seen many of these pictures, and I ask them what they think, and they say, great really well done. Very realistic. They don't look at it emotionally. They don't actually think that anyone's been hurt. Kids are raw. They don't have the deep emotions that adults often project onto them.
3: Caroline has worked with some of the legends in the horror film business, and she is quick to observe that many of them, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Vincent Price, are among the gentlest, kindest, most sophisticated and intelligent men she's worked with.
4: Playing villains, one must exploit the other self. The alter ego.
3: The last horror film should be released in the summer or fall of 1982. It was filmed during the Cannes Film Festival.
4: As we were shooting at the festival, it often happened that we shot spontaneously. Whatever happened, happened. Come hell or high water, we went ahead. There was a great deal of improvisation. It became more interesting to make changes as we were actually filming. The movie is about fans, and the effect their heroes have upon them. It's a whodunit, thriller, mystery with lots of action, and quite a few special effects, of the gory variety, that
3: is. To escape the mad world of fame and film, Caroline goes climbing.
4: I'm good for those kinds of heights, but man-made heights terrify me. Eventually I'd like to join a climbing club. My ultimate ambition is to climb the Himalayas.
3: And what of her professional future?
4: I have it in my mind to try the stage in the not-too-distant future. I would like to see if I could do it, brave that challenge. If I have an ambition now, it's to get better at what I do.
1: That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios.
5: Night has fallen, and the time has come to experience Terror at Collinwood, a podcast dedicated to the iconic gothic television series Dark Shadows. Terror at Collinwood explores the hidden secrets within the sinister walls of the Collins estate. Hosted by two-time Rondo Award-winning television horror hostess Penny Dreadful, the podcast features interviews and in-depth discussions with fans and creators as they examine the cursed characters and supernatural storylines of that creepy classic Dark Shadows. Beware the night and the restless dead who wail on Widow's Hill and prepare yourself for Terror at Collinwood, a Dark Shadows podcast. Available at terror at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Seance, The I Ching, or wherever you get your scary podcasts.
2: Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Dark clouds and swirling cold encircle Terrestrial Defense Force Headquarters, setting up a showdown at 140 degrees below zero in the 25th episode of Ultra 7. The flash freeze poses a significant challenge to TDF, even causing the Pointer automobile to stall while Dan is on patrol. The confidence of the crew remains high, that is, until a seismic event rocks the foundations of the base. As Dan trudges through the waist-high snow on his way back to headquarters, it's discovered that something has demolished the atomic reactor which powers the base. A skeleton crew tries to make repairs, but their efforts are thwarted by a subterranean monster which emits icy breath from its mouth. Meanwhile, Dan, still exposed to the elements, receives a hallucinatory message from the elf-like alien Pole, who tell of their plan to initiate a third ice age. Well aware they're addressing Ultra 7, they demonstrate that they know his Achilles heel. The hero of the Land of Light is considerably slowed by cold hence their Arctic attack on TDF. As if that wasn't bad enough news, Dan realizes that he's lost the Ultra-Eye in the snow, expending his remaining energy in a desperate scramble to find the device. At the same time, alien Pole releases Kaiju Gandar to finish him off. This creates the opportunity for the Ultra-Guard to renew repairs on the reactor, but with workers dropping from the intense cold, leadership struggles with the realization that the time may have come for them to evacuate, a move likened to abandoning planet Earth. Showdown at 140 Degrees Below Zero is an impressive example of the series' capabilities intertwining the cinematic scope of a disaster epic, thoughtful human drama, and alien-monster conflict. For the first time, viewers learn that Ultra 7 has a weakness, around which Alien Pole has developed their strategy, and it limits our hero's effectiveness. This means the Ultra Guard and TDF must rise to the occasion, giving the humans real agency and importance, as opposed to them simply being rescued over and over by their red and silver guardian. And I'm happy to report that for the second episode in a row, Dan unleashes a capsule monster. This time it's Nicholas who acquits himself quite nicely in battle against Gandar, buying Dan and the Ultra Guard the time they need to recharge and regroup. With the exception of a few light-hearted moments during the Monster Melee, Showdown at 140 Degrees has some serious things to say about duty, perseverance, and the value of human life. In other words, it just might give you chills. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting.
6: Hi, I'm Jeff Owens. And I'm Richard Chamberlain. And we want you to join our club, the Classic Horrors Club. Every month, Richard and I host the Classic Horrors Club podcast, where we talk about our favorite subject, horror movies. Some of them are classics. We all go a little mad sometimes. And some definitely aren't. What you see is
1: real. What's done is done, and what I've done is right. It's the work of science.
6: But We love them all the same. We also have special theme months, where we highlight the legendary stars. And we head to the drive-ins of the past every summer for exciting double and triple features. Hi, I'm Chilly Dilly, the personality pickle.
0: And we
1: even have occasional
0: guests. My obsession, and it is truly an obsession, I suppose, of Frankenstein The True Story dates back to when it first aired in two parts on NBC in 1973. So join the fun and
6: listen to the Classic Horrors Club podcast today. Hosted by SoundCloud, we're available wherever fine podcasts are found. And for even more fun, check out the video companion on our YouTube
3: channel. And remember, we sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment.
6: Well, now, I am so happy uh, to be here to do this q and uh, I think I did one once before with her. We uh, had, I think, John Bishop do it last time, and she is just a wonderful, wonderful lady who has worked with about everybody in Hollywood and has the greatest stories and she has the greatest history on film and TV. Here at Monster Bash, it's Beverly Washburn. A warm welcome. I'm mean, having the best time, and it's just so nice to see all of you. Thank you for having me back, Ron. It's so much to me. You are Banish family. Al, we we love you, everyone. You've yeah. really yeah. 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 seen her the table. Isn't she the one of the nicest yeah. guests yeah. we've yeah. ever yeah. had? Yeah. We've had hundreds of guests now in 25 years, and you're. You're up there at the top. (laughs) Thank
7: you. That means so much to me and you're also nice. I see so many familiar faces and some new faces and thank you for coming to my table and talking to me and you're all so sweet and it always just, it makes me smile because you're all so sweet and you thank me for being here and I think it has to be the other way around because if it weren't for all of you, we'd have no reason to be here. So I just want to say thank you to all of you, and is this not the best convention? Yeah. <laughs> volunteers
6: and everybody that's involved worked so hard and it shows that all the little extra things to do, it, it's just so terrific. I'm try to make it fun. We all it love the is. movies and we love the stars and so it's just great. Why don't we, um, I'll ask just a few questions. Uh, we'll get get some of the more generic ones that everyone needs to always know out of the way first and then we'll dig a little deeper and throw it out to the audience, okay? All right, well, let's start first with what most people in this audience know you for, (laughs) Spider-Baby. And, and, you know, I I know we've talked about this before, but it seems like there's a lot of new people in the audience tonight. So, uh, what are your memories of working on the movie Spider-Baby? Well,
7: it's one of my fondest memories. And I was just, I was overwhelmed yesterday and today, how many people came up and talked about Spider-Baby and how uh, much does they love it? And it means so much to me because, um, for most of you, probably know that like it was done like how many years
6: ago? Like sixty-four 60, or so, right? right? Was that?
7: But I'm only fifty. How <laughs> <stop it. laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> so, Yeah,
7: it, it was uh, done a long time ago, and I always joke that the budget was like eleven dollars. <laughs> so um, when we did it. We didn't have any idea, like all these years later it would be so popular. The sad thing is that um, Roland Cheney who was so wonderful in that I mean I can't imagine anybody else doing that role, and he was so terrific to work with. Well, he loved doing Bruno and what's sad is that he didn't live long enough to see how it you know, how it is now, how people embrace it and how it's a loader. turned movie. into
6: a cult classic
7: now, too. I know, I'm just so proud to have been a part of it. And we had no idea because it just sat there for years. And then Quentin Tarantino uh, is the, a good friend of Jack Hills who produced and, uh, not produced, but directed and wrote it. And Quentin Tarantino saw the movie and loved it. And so he was really instrumental in getting it re-released because. after we did it and went into some kind of a litigation I I wasn't privy to what happened exactly but the two people that put the money up for it I think it was like $60,000 or something like that which wasn't much, well they were not really in the show business, they were two attorneys but they wanted to be a part of it so they put up the money and something happened, I don't really know what it was but It went into litigation and it was never released. So it sat there for years. And then just, you know, all of a sudden it appeared. And it's just sad that Lon Cheney didn't get to see it. And um, Jill Banner, who um, she was the sister and it, she was Virginia. No, she was Elizabeth. was (laughs) I. I was Elizabeth, she was Virginia. And um, sadly, she probably most of you know, she was killed in an automobile accident, and so she didn't get to see.
6: And very shortly after the film, I mean, Mm -hmm. relatively, right, it wasn't like, you know, she didn't get to see the cult following
7: that. She didn't, and that was the first film, and she was wonderful in it, and I think she would have gone on to do a lot, lot more things, because people just loved her in that movie. And it was very sad that she didn't get to
6: see. Well, you know, there's a lot of Lon Chaney fans here at Monster Bash, <laughs> and uh, can you relate any little tidbit of uh, behind-the-scenes of Lon Chaney? I <laughs> there there's something about nicknames, right? Well, <laughs> I
7: don't know what was, where they came from, but Lon Chaney nicknamed Jill and me, and he, he called her Cracker Ass. <laughs> and he called me Bubble Butt. <laughs> I don't know why. But it stuck. And it was just fun. He was so dear.
6: Now you're known for being able to, to, to cry on you know, demand for a lot of a lot of people hired you, I think, because of your ability, right? To just cry. And did Juan actually crying. Yes, saluting. those
7: were real tears that he cried. i the scene. see, for those of you who have seen it, um, when he knows what he's going to do next and he tears up. Well, they have tricks in the movie business where if somebody can't cry, the makeup person, I don't know, they put something that they spray into your eyes. For me, luckily, I never had to do that because I cry at supermarket openings. <laughs> <laughs> so, I never had that, but they would do that, and then if they wanted tears coming down, they'd take something, it was like glycerin or something, with a little um type thing, and they would put it in the corners of your eyes, and the tears would come down. So they weren't sure that, you know, he would be able to bring on the tears, so the makeup man was standing nearby, ready if he needed to. But he was so into that role, and he loved doing it so much that he cried. So in that scene, when you see him cry, those are real tears. Wow.
6: Now, uh, before we turn over to the audience, the other dream thing that more than just us, the general public know you for is old you and know, uh, Memories from that film, from Disney.
7: Well, for those of you that I've spoken to over the weekend, you know that I'm animal lover and I like to donate money to my animal charities and so I appreciate when you buy my photos and things. And for me that was also one of my favorites because I'm a huge animal lover and I was so thrilled to get that role and partially because it was a Disney film of course, but to be able to work with a dog. And he was a wonderful dog. His name was Spike and his real name. And um, I always say that his dressing room is bigger than mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was very well treated on the, on the set. They have rules like they do for minors. Like with the two boys, um, Kevin Corcoran and Tony Kirk and myself, we were minors, so we have to have school on the set uh, three hours a day. And we would um, have school with the tears and the Mickey Mouse Club and a big red trailer on the Disney lot. And that's how we all became friends. And um, so, but with old Yeller, he had to have his, you know, they took very good care of him. They would make sure that he had his water in his treats and they would let him rest and all that in between.
6: Yeah, I mean, you remained friends with Tommy Kirk for years, right?
7: Yes. I, he and I were friends for 66 years. Yes. We remained friends. And he moved to Las Vegas where I could live in just. 27 years, and we were actually scheduled to do an old yellow reunion this past January. And sadly, as probably a lot of you know, he passed away in September. It was really devastating. And I'm the only one still living from old yellow, which doesn't feel right. <laughs> I'm the only
0: before
6: you start quiet, right, let's get this <laughs> question, to some question from the audience, please make it upbeat. <laughs> okay, with a okay, cane right over here. Okay, so, all the other was a Disney movie, Spider-Baby
5: was not, that's Captain Obvious right there. there. I'm just wondering, was your experience, I know they're totally different genres, but was your experience working with Disney, like, have any unique differences than, like working with another studio? Unique differences with
6: yeah. Disney compared to maybe smaller right. budgets.
5: Um,
7: well, in Old we worked for three months, which is difficult to do on a feature, whereas with um, spider we filmed the whole in 13 days, <laughs> 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 and one hour <laughs> and, um, When you work on a film, like I, I was fortunate to work in some of the films, like The Greatest Show on Earth, and The Javador, and *Your um, Comes the Room, and Shane. Typically, you work for three months, so you kind of become, it sounds cliche, but you typically become like a family because you see each other every day for like three months. And um, with Spider Baby, it was so quick, so we all got along really well, but um, we didn't have time to really connect and hang out together because we had to get it done. such a short time to get into the budget.
6: So you didn't you go down to the bar yeah. with launching <laughs> <laughs> but,
7: but working on the Disney thing it was fun because we got into have with the mouse tears. And um <coughs> Baby was just a different vibe, but it was um, and it was done so quickly.
6: Okay, uh, more questions from Beverly, <laughs> go to this side. Paul? Uh, what
2: was it like working on the Star Trek set? So yeah. yeah. Where are do we- you?
6: Uh, Star Trek, our over here Star Trek. Uh, what was it like working on the Star Trek?
7: Star Trek was, um, that was really fun too. It was, the, when I did it, um, it was the second season, so it wasn't really all that popular yet. Yeah, it wasn't, in fact, it was only on a couple of seasons, and it was the fans that brought it back. And so when I went on the audition, um, the first thing they asked me is if I was claustrophobic. Well, I didn't know what the role was about. I thought to myself that it's kind of an odd question to ask me. I've never been asked that before when I read for a while. Well, the reason is because in the, the episode I did, for those of you who didn't see it, it's the deadly years, and it's the episode where we all get old and um, I die. And I wasn't even wearing a red
5: shirt. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
7: and so I died of old age. So what they had to do was they had to Um, make a plaster cast with my face, and I had to breathe through a straw for, until it dried. And then after the plaster cast dried, then they made a rubber mask, and then they had to put that on my face, and then the gray wig. So it took four and a half hours to do my makeup which is about the same amount of time you takes me
6: now. <laughs> uh, uh, so another question, how about a writer of yep. uh, when, when making the Disney film, were, did
7: you meet Walt Disney, was he Yes, I actually had to read for him, and uh, I, it was a thrill and an honor to meet him. So when I went on the audition, they give you what's called the side. They don't give you the whole script. They give you like the scene that they want you to read for. So it's just a couple of pages. So you read typically for the director and the writer and the cast and person, and, and Walt Disney was in the room. So I was a little nervous about doing it, and I just was so hoping to get the role because. To be in a Disney movie for one thing, and also to be working with the dog. In fact, this dog over here reminds me of the old yellow Disney And, I it. and um, so it, it was. He was a, a very nice fan. He would come on the set daily, but he never intruded. He, would, you know, he was very soft-spoken, and he never told the director how to direct or the lighting people how to light or. You know, he just let everybody do their job, and, and then he would just smile
6: and leave and come back each day. Okay, now we can go back to this side of the room. Anyone over here have a question? Okay, over here. Whoa, real quick, blue hat. All right. Uh, how was it to work? Recollections of working on uh, the episode,
2: Leave it to Beaver, how was it to work with not only Jerry Mathers and Tony Dow, but also
6: Barbara Billingsley and the late great Hugh Beaumont? used to be
7: It was. I know it sounds redundant, but it was also one of my favorite things because, um, well, Tony Dow, Wally, um, he actually wrote a foreword for my book that uh, they have. We remained friends all these years, and of course, at the time, like every other girl in America, I had a huge crush on Wally Cleaver. I mean, every little girl did, and so I was working on an episode of Thriller. <laughs> next door. And on the stage for the theater, it was <clears throat> no entry. Nobody was allowed to go in there and I oh, darn it, I really wanted to meet Tony Gow. And so Barbara Billingsley was my in because I had done a series with her when I was 11 years old. She, it was a short-lived series called Professional Father and uh, she was my she was mother, mother in that. It was before she became here and mm-hmm. And so when I went over to, there was a guard standing by the door, and so I, I didn't want him to say I was just some crazy fan, although he was, <laughs> so, so I just told him that I was working in the station store door, and that I knew Barbara Billingsley, and if I wondered if I could come in and say hello to her. So he let me in, and I met, you know, I got to see Barbara after all the years, who was the sweetest woman, and so she introduced me to Tony Gow, and then as would have habit, casting director happened to be on the stage that day. And so Barbara introduced us, and he said, can you come to my office tomorrow because we're casting, and I'd like you to read me the role?" And that's how I got the part, and it was called the um, Blind Date Committee, where Wally gets stuck because he's supposed to find dates for everybody, and nobody wanted to go out with me. And so he gets stuck with me, and then in yeah. the end, uh, we're in a at uh, the malt shop, and so we became friends ever since. And did uh,
6: the like teen magazine pick up on you and Tony Dow being a thing? Am I remembering right from your biography? Yeah,
7: well, back in the like in uh, today's world, we've got People magazine and things like that, but back then a very long time ago, they had a teen screen and tiger beat and photo play and all that. What they would do is they would set up phony days, it would look like you're on a day, and then they would have a photographer and another person that would write something. And what they would do, they weren't real days, but they would um, they would take the picture like, uh, I was with Tony Dow one time and then Bobby Rydell and Paul Peterson from the Donna Reed Show. You got around. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Bobby Boris, yeah. And so they would set us up on these dates, and then the, it would come out in the magazine, and it would say things like, Bobby Rydell was seen holding hands with Beverly Washburn at the ice cream parlor, or something like oh that, God. or Tony down and Beverly Washburn, caught kissing uh, at the circus. And, Stuff like that, and they were just setups. <laughs> but um, you know, a girl can dream. You know, so, was, <laughs> <laughs> so it, I got to get, go out with all those
6: wonderful guys. Okay, another question. Uh, the, okay, right yeah. in front, gentlemen. During the time that you uh, worked with Lon Chaney, did you talk about Lou Costello with them? Since you work, both worked with Lou Costello, not at
7: length, because yes. we were in such a tight time frame. But speaking of Luke Costello, um, I did an episode of Wagon Thing, as, as you know, and it was the only dramatic role he ever did. And he, um, it, it was a joy to work
6: with him. In fact, last year when you were here, I made a point to watch that, and if you hadn't seen it, it is an incredible episode. Both Beverly and Luke Costello are just terrific.
7: I love working with him, and he did a wonderful job. And now this is only to a man, bro. And it was so good,
6: wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay, more <laughs> questions for Beverly. Bring it in. Yeah, yeah. otherly. Hi. I
7: think you can dispel the notion that Jack Benny was cheap. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Benny is probably one of the most generous men I've ever worked with. Um, I worked with him the first time when I was about eight years old. You can see it on YouTube. You just type in Jack Benny and the little girl, and they'd help me plant in the audience, and i come up and ask for his autograph. And it's a very funny sit, but I was too I didn't get any of the jokes. I was too young. <laughs> so it wasn't until I became an adult that I realized, you know, and, and then I got the jokes. But, he was so generous, and in fact, I talk about it in my book, because he had that um, history of people thinking he was a tiny one, and he was anything, but in fact, when my dad was in the hospital, Jack Benny sent over his own personal position to look in for my dad. Mm-hmm. And The wonderful thing about that is he didn't do it for the accolades or so that people would do a write-up or say, oh, it was, he?" Not? Nobody knew except my family. So he did it from the heart. He was just generous like that. He paid for his physician to look in on my dad. He gave me a beautiful St. Christopher that I would treasure forever. And he was, he was wonderful, and then I got to tour with him. In uh, his 70s, we played the Sahara and Tahoe and toured all over the East Coast. It was a really nice memory.
6: Now you were on that thriller episode, uh, and I know you didn't actually act it for us, Charlotte, but he, he was there on the set he, he right?
7: He was there. That was a thrill to meet him, because uh, he would introduce the cast. And the episode that I did, um, what was the name of it? Parasite Mansion. Thank you. Mansion, and it was with Jeanette Nolan, who was brilliant. And I'm locked up in room. And there's a rain. Everybody says oh, it's always raining, or <laughs> <laughs> If you kind of add something. So it's raining, and the actress is driving, and her car stalls, and she ends up at this mansion, and she finds me, and um, I'm locked up in the attic. And um, what was the place?
6: <laughs> oh, I, I was just asking about working with Boris Barlow. Yeah. Oh,
7: yeah. So he wasn't in that episode, but he was on the set because the way they did it is he would introduce everybody. So we would all be sitting in the beginning on the floor, on the sofa, and he would say, Tonight's episode is called Parasite Mansion, and it stars Jeanette Nolan, James Griffin, and go around, and the camera would pan around. So I got to meet him. And that was some thrill, but he wasn't in the episode, so we didn't get to really work with him. All right. Okay, more questions. Right
6: on the song.
7: What was your favorite role that you did? Oh gosh. I don't know. I have, I I feel so blessed because I have to tell you that when I was little, you have a different concept of everything. I didn't know who Jack Bain was. I didn't know who I didn't know I was being directed by Cecil B. DeMille and George Stevens and Frank Capra. And it wasn't until I became an adult that I realized just how blessed I really was to have those memories. And so each memory was different. Of course, I loved Old Yellow because I'm an animal lover. <clears throat> and I love working on Superman and Mole Man. I didn't know who George Reeves was, but I knew who Superman was. So being that young, for me, that was the thrill. And then, of course, Spider Baby, i got to say that. And, Believe it to be your because I got to make fresh Tony totally Dow and we're still friends to this day. So I, I can't really pin down anyone, but I can say this, that in my old age, I feel so blessed that I worked with so many wonderful people, Loretta Young and uh, Red Skelton, Kirk Douglas, and uh, so many people, but I didn't appreciate it the way that I do now, because it, it, I just go from show to show, and um, it was just, um, I don't know, I, I just thank God every day, and I thank all of you for remembering some of the things that I was in, and um, it's just fun to reminisce. And my
6: memory, right, from reading your uh, biography, there's Loretta mm-hmm. Young was here to you as well, right?
7: Yeah. yeah, she was kind of like my mentor. I did, several of her shows she had um, in the beginning she had the Loretta Young show it was called Letters to Loretta at first and it was based on actual fan letters that people would write to her and then they would send it to this uh, screenwriter and they would write a story about it then it kind of phased into just the Loretta Young show and I did I guess four or five episodes and then years later she did the new Loretta Young show And it was a short lived series because we were opposite of Ben Casey. And if you remember that with Vince Edwards, and that was the ratings were really high. So after one season, our show was canceled. But I I stayed in touch with her up until the time she died. And she was a lovely, lovely woman.
6: Hey, more questions from Beverly, one, for Beverly Washburn. Another one from Dan. Yeah.
2: Hey, Beverly, I love I love Spider Baby. It, it's, it's really surreal and offbeat and disturbing. <laughs> <laughs>
7: disturbing as some
2: Avant-garde. I mean, I remember when I first met you, you were at Simo Wasteland and you did a show with Jack Hill, and of course, we love our beloved Sid Haggins so very much. So... He may he rest in peace. But yes. my question to you concerning Spider Baby is. How was it to work with the late Ray um, Carol Olmeyer?
7: Uh It was wonderful, she missed it. They recently found out that she had passed away. She kind of went, they didn't know if she had retired well, they were having a hard time finding her. She really
6: kind of went into obscurity for
7: years. Yeah, and then somebody found out that sadly she did pass away two years ago, but she was as nice as she could be. It was, it was just a really fun set. Everybody got him on great, and I did another film with Sid Hay, and to those of you who got to meet him, I'm sure you can attest to the fact that he was one of the nicest guys and loved his fans.
6: It might have been wacky or mean on the street but yeah i, I met him been in the way of saying as well what a nice
7: guy he was terrific yeah that was a
6: big loss okay more questions from everybody. watched for way over here, yeah. probably
7: i was wondering about with spider baby any
2: memories about with working with mantan morland
7: well I, I was excited today to meet him because he did a lot of stuff back yeah. in the day he was quite well known and he was adorable, but he was just on that for one day because his theme was short, you know. And so I was honored to meet him. but we didn't again because we hadn't get this, you know, done because of their budget. We didn't have a lot of time to interact with each other, <laughs> other than we all did get. We all did get along very well. Okay. okay
6: more questions, right here Frank
1: Kennedy. Yep. I was curious to know how when uh, Spider Baby came out and. When your parents or your family saw it, or <laughs> what was their reaction? Is <laughs> it such a strange movie?
6: <laughs>
1: what, well, was, what the reaction was? This?
7: My dad had already passed away by the time he did it, but you know, my mother was quite supportive in anything I did, and so she was always a loving mother and proud of me because she knew it's what I like to do. So
5: um,
7: you know, I, I don't think she would have. Allowed me to do it if it was anything you know that shouldn't be on screen. But that that film um, was just kind of campy, you know. It wasn't anything that you shouldn't see, I guess. Okay. More questions for Beverly? Uh, okay. Wow,
6: well, it's a whole bunch in the same Okay, the one that has someone holding your arm off back right there.
0: <laughs> so many iconic roles in great movies, in television shows. Okay played over and over. I had no idea that you
5: were
7: in uh, the greatest show on earth. That had been the first thing you ever did. I mean, it's amazing. Any thoughts <laughs> of that at all? Thank you. Well, again, I was so young. Um, that was done in Paramount. It wasn't my first. My first film that I did was a movie called Killer That Stopped New York, and that was with Keys and William Bishop, and Dorothy alone. And then after that, I did Here Comes the Groom with Bing Crosby and Jenny Wyman. And then it was the great show on Earth. I think it was in that order. And so I was so young and in the scene, it was under the you know, the top ten and it was on the stage. And um, I didn't know who Cecil B. DeMille was because I was too young. And I the clown was James Stewart, of course. Mm-hmm. James Stewart. And, yeah, was, but I didn't know you know, I was too young to know who Jimmy Stewart was. So for me I was just excited that I was taught to give a clown.
6: You know, so it takes me a while. Um, you know, I, I, I failed to mention, we well, you just scream here premonition from one step of beyond? Your memories from that? Um, it,
7: well, John Newland, uh, for this one I didn't have to read for the role because I worked with John Newland before. He directed some of the Loretta Young shows, the one who was the host. And, well, they dyed my my well now I'm gray. I, I know you thought this was real, but I'm gray. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but growing up as a child, I was blonde. But the girl that played um, Lisa, older, was brunette. So they thought it would be easier to dye my hair darker rather than try to make lighter. So that's why my hair was darker then. And um, it was just it was a fun show to be on. And that scene in the beginning when I'm like, going around and around, they had this concoction, I don't know how they they did it. It was like a piece of wood, and it was on some kind of a thing where they would spin it around. Swivel. So swivel around, and then they just kept it out of the camera range and do that. But um, it it was a fun show to work on.
6: More questions, Sir Beverly a Right over here. Um,
7: your stories are amazing, and
6: one of the things that
7: strikes me—you
6: were in everything—and <laughs> um, I'm wondering, what do you think it's like for young actors and actresses coming up these days? Episodic TV is over. I mean, there's all the streaming stuff, but it doesn't
5: seem like—I'm guessing—the
0: opportunities just aren't
6: there. The way they once were. Well, and, and plus,
7: the storylines are so different now. It's like um, the episode of Wagon Train um, with Luke, Luke Costello. It, the storylines, as you know, I'm a little orphan runaway and I'm traveling with this man who's also an alcoholic and then there's a murder and all that. But in today's world, you couldn't have that kind of storyline. It would be totally inappropriate to have a little girl traveling with a man. And I did an episode of Four Star Playhouse with Dick Powell. And again, it was the thing where he's on a train, and i am be on the train, I'm traveling alone, and we become friends. And I hadn't seen it in years, because I think it was about 10 when I did it, and um, 20 years ago, but anyway. <laughs> I hadn't seen it in years, and somebody found it for me, and um, I don't know where they got it. I guess eBay, I don't know. And I watched it, and there's this one scene where, um, after we meet, we're talking, and Dick Powell is sitting in the, the, one of the cars on the train, and I come up, and he reaches for a cigarette, and I light his cigarette, and I'm like, 10 years old. And, just, and then, at the time, I mean, now, that would be ridiculous. To,
6: at that time, there's something, yeah. something to it. And, but back then, it was the norm. Everybody
7: smiled, even the women. And it was just different. But as far as today's world, the storylines are different, and the pay. Um, like, some of these kids today make like a million dollars. And a couple weeks ago, I got a residual. It was for one penny. I swear, <laughs> to, you. I swear to you. And I thought, I take this? To the bank,
1: with
7: the same place, and ask
1: them to deposit it or cash it. So I framed
3: it. Interesting. <laughs> I actually
7: framed it because they have, they said with a residual, you get this paperwork, and it has the the uh, name of the episode, the name of the show, the company. Then they have it all listed, and it'll say gross and net. So the gross is three cents. And the net was one penny, I swear to you. So I framed it, I had to frame it because it seemed so silly to me. It was made out to me zero, one. one and then I did foreign residuals, and last year I guess it was, they listed them, and they were from Sweden, Switzerland, Germany, um, Hong Kong, they were from all over the world. There were thirty-eight residuals and they were listed. But they put it all in one check from thirty-eight shows, and my check is for ten dollars and fifty-six cents. Uh, because I'm looking at it, and there would be like one for nineteen cents, one for a dollar two, another one for thirty-nine cents, and all total thirty-eight of them, I swear to you. And now these kids today they, they make millions. <laughs> Some that part's is to different
6: too. Uh, we have time for one more question for Beverly Washburn. And okay, cane is really—we started with you, we'll end with you. The girl with the cane. Okay. So, Miss um, Washburn, um, based on the stories that you've been telling, um, you like? I'm just, just just so that I know if this question actually is a logical.
7: Most of it, yes. Uh-huh. I, I kind of went from show to show and was very fortunate and then it kind of slowed down a little bit, but i still down with it. I still do some narration for documentaries and um, still doing it. And, and this is all part of my life, being at these conventions. And again, Ron and Ursula and all the volunteers that work here, so hard and it takes such good care of everybody. You are the best and I love you and I am so grateful to be here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank so much.
6: We love you. I think Ursula. Has a little gift for you here. Um, we we weren't giving you flowers, but they just had to throw them away before going on uh, an air an air flight. And it says it's, it's, a, it's a box of homemade candy from one of our vendors, and it's printed right on there. Monster Bash, guest and uh, Beverly, we love you so much, Beverly.
0: for listening to this episode of monster kid radio big thanks to mark big thanks to mike big thanks to kenny big thanks to beverly Washburn, and big thanks to you for being part of what we do here at monster kid radio i love having you along for the ride i just you know i'm so thankful that i've got so many people out there enjoying what i'm able to put together here with the help of all the contributors and everybody else so thank you so much If you want to learn more about Monster Kid Radio, well, you know, you got to go to monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find links to our Facebook page, Facebook group, YouTube, Twitter, uh, Discord, Patreon. That's it, I think, right? Yeah, and our contact information is there as well. Our voicemail line is 360-524-2484. And we have an email address, monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I do have some feedback. I have a voicemail from one of the listeners. I am going to sit on that until next week, so come back for that. Also come back, because next week, it's the Conan the Barbarian episode. Heck yeah! That's going to be fun. Steve if Turek and I are scheduled to record here in a couple of days, to re-record, actually, since I lost the original recording. So you're going to have that, plus you're going to have the audio that I captured with Chris McMillan and my girlfriend Beth at the screening of Conan the Barbarian here at the Hollywood Theater that happened last weekend and oh man that was awesome you'll have to come back next week to hear about how awesome that was you know what else is awesome who else is awesome you thank you for listening i think i already said that once but i'm going to say it again thank you monster kid radio is registered service mark of monster kid radio llc all original content of monster kid radio by monster kid radio llc is licensed under creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 unported license of course that doesn't apply to the song The Dredger. That is copyright 2021 Hall of Famers, Satan's Pilgrims. Check them out over at Satan's satanspilgrims.bandcamp.com. Tell them that Monster Kid Radio sent My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>